one fine day Love came for me And love was rare As love can be Hello, welcome to T. Hanks for the Memories a podcast about Tom Hanks. Uh, I'm your host, Darren. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Tom Hanks's proper real film debut. Um, you know, up until this point, we've had two episodes where I covered, you know, a brief cameo in a horror film, uh, a cameo that was so charming that they didn't kill his character off. So, forty years later, we could still have him in a sequel if somebody ever wanted to do a sequel to that particular film. Um, and then, of course, we talked about the uh, Dungeons and Dragons scare movie, uh, Mazes and Monsters. Um, which came out as a TV film, which was kind of Tom Hanks' first major role, uh, or at least, you know, most of the posters these days would have you think. Uh, he's in roughly about, I don't know, a quarter of that film. So, uh, But they feature his face very prominently on the poster. Um, a thing that becomes very common uh, with Tom Hanks and posters is you get a lot of his face. Uh, people, when they design, they really just go for, here is a big picture of Tom Hanks. Um, and they trust that that will bring the public in. Um, so today we're going to be talking about his feature film debut, uh, which of course was Splash, um, which uh, which of course was released on the 9th of March 1984 and was a huge box office success for Ron Howard and for Tom Hanks, cemented him as a star, um, you know, did, I don't know, like 70 million off an 11 million budget. That's, you know, in the 80s, that's gigantic business. Um, and joining me to talk about this film today, I have with me Alice. Hello, Alice. Hello. Hi there. And I have Eric. Hello, Eric. Hello. Thanks for having me on. And we have Kelly. Hello, Kelly. Hi. How are you? I am doing great because we're going to be talking about Tom Hanks. And, uh, you know, the most beloved actor in history, probably, I would say. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say it's up for debate, but, you know. Who else do you like above Tom Hanks? Nobody. Nobody loves anybody more than Tom Hanks. Um, you know, he got COVID and it was a national and international disaster to the world. People were like, please, Tom, do not die. Um, you know, certainly don't die before the president at the time. You know, let's, <laughs> you know, let's not give that victory to him, outliving Tom Hanks. Um, so as with, uh, from this point going forward, um, I'm going to talk about whether or not Tom Hanks gets top billing. And yes, he gets top billing, uh, which is a surprise because he's basically, an, I mean, not an unknown, um, he had recently, um, you know, had a TV show that lasted a couple of seasons. You know, Maze of the Monsters was, you know, well-viewed on TV. But it's kind of interesting that, you know, Tom Hanks gets billing over Daryl Hannah, who up until this point had had, you know, uh, a, you know a fairly good career. Um, you know, she'd already been in um, Blade Runner. After this, she was in, you know, Legal Eagles, Roxanne, Wall Street, you know. Um, and then things kind of drop off a bit. But we'll talk about that later on. Um, but, you know, up until this point, she was, you know, she was a name. Uh, whereas Tom Hanks was just, you know, um, a guy whose sitcom had got cancelled, basically. Um, so, And this, of course, is his first collaboration with Ron Howard. We're talking about Ron Howard many, many times in the future. I've already talked about Ron Howard a ton, because, of course, I did a podcast covering Arrested Development. Um, so what's weird is I'm sure there's some generation of people who basically just know him as the narrator from Arrested Development and probably don't realise that he's like a film director. I, I even had to point... I even had to point that out on on one of my episodes for for my main my main currently going show and and he maybe yeah. probably even didn't realize that he was Richie Cunningham you know like when you when you kind of look at the fact that he was such a huge like TV star in the seventies I don't think feel that people these days realize how big Happy Days was I mean the show launched three spin offs I mean that's 
like in the age of sitcoms in the 70s when you've got such a limited TV time it's amazing that it did that and of course Tom Hanks guest starred on an episode of uh, Happy Days and that is you know one of the reasons why um, he got to see this script because Ron Howard was like you know I'm directing films now uh, I think he'd done Night Shift at this point with uh, Henry Winkler which I feel is <laughs> with somebody is, is the Fonz doing him a favour basically um, and so you know he was obviously you know take a look at this script what do you think and there's a lot of stories about how many people kind of were up for the role that Tom Hanks took and the role that Daryl Hannah took and apparently like literally almost everybody in Hollywood like turned it down um, and Tom Hanks himself has said on many occasions, um, you know, he was like the 11th choice for the role, um, which is kind of incredible because it just feels like a kind of this is I feel where we get the kind of prototypical Tom Hanks kind of comedy like archetype. This is just the character that he seems to play in comedies for the next like decade and a half um, where he's kind of like charming and slightly bumbling and kind of, you know, uh, falling in love with mermaids. I mean, you know. Uh, the story, of course, of, of the film is that um, the producer of it, uh, Brian Grazer, he of the crazy hair, had this idea about, you know, someone falling in love with a mermaid. Um, they brought in Bruce J. Friedman, whose career, like, is kind of crazy uh, in that it starts and ends with the exact same film. Um, he wrote a short story that ended up being turned into the film The Heartbreak Kid and then that was adapted again as The Heartbreak Kid uh, in like 2007 so like the first and last films on his uh, on his rep, on his kind of uh, CV are the same film basically um, so he came in to kind of punch up um, you know uh, Brian Grazer's idea um, and then they brought in um, the, I mean these names always Lulgans and Babalu Mandel which is <laughs> like such a uh, kind of, uh, you know, a comedy team basically who, um, who, who, you know, after I don't know that Splash was like their big kind of their big start, but I think they'd written, I think they actually did Night Shift, which which was Ron Howard's first film. They wrote that, and then they wrote this, and then they did like you know, um, Spies Like Us and Parenthood and City Slickers, A League of Their Own. You know, like they just did all these like really big kind of um, kind of high concept comedies throughout the 80s and the 90s you know and obviously they've been friends 40 years going on now so um, but yeah so we'll, we'll kind of have to mention their name a few more times um, you know I think they became more well known for working with uh, Billy Crystal and I think they even wrote a lot of his jokes when he would present the uh, the Oscars and stuff so Tom Hanks is, is Alan and uh, Daryl Hannah is uh, a character whose name cannot be said, uh, which is probably this is probably one of my favourite times when someone does that gag. Um, you know, there's a there's a joke in I think the, the Simpsons um, Treehouse of Horror, like the very first one, uh, where the the, the aliens um, you know kidnap the Simpsons and they say you know how do we say your name and it's uh, it's the, the the cook, and he says to say my name accurately you'd have to pull out your own tongue. Um, so I kind of like this gag of like not being able to pronounce someone's name and you know I think this is probably one of the kind of funnier occasions where they use that uh, but let's not get ahead of ourselves uh, you know let's get into the film um, and we start as any good film does with a sepia toned and I don't know why they made that choice flashback to 20 years ago in Cape Cod where we've got like a you know a boat tour I mean the thing we're going to have to address is a trait that they gave to John Candy's character who plays his brother um, you know, uh, this is the first of a, a couple of collaborations I think with John Candy and Tom Hanks, and he has this thing. He's a ten-year-old. They make it clear that he's ten, but he keeps dropping change so that he can look at women's skirts. And uh, even when I saw this film as a child, I was like, that just seems slightly unsavory. Like, uh, like 
I mean, when they do the they when they do it as a kid, they kind of play it off a little bit as a joke. Particularly as a lot of the women's skirts are like really long, so he's having to kind of like get kind of on the floor basically and just turn around and look up. Um, and, but then they keep that trait as an adult. Like I, I, I don't know why. Like to convince us that it's the same character, maybe I don't know. But uh, it's one of the few things in this film that I just think it's just aged, you know, poorly. I don't think it was even a particularly funny joke, you know, in 1984. But you know, as time has gone on, it's certainly not got any better. For a boy of that age, I think you know, it's it's, it's just this odd fascination type of thing. But then, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Why they keep this trait other than to just, just to make sure we know it's the same person uh, for when he's an adult. I mean, it is that is just so way overboard, so to speak. Um, bad choice of words, possibly. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, pretty, very pervy, essentially, as an adult. And I, like I say, it, it does. I mean, he only as an adult, he only does it once, doesn't he? He does it at the wedding. Well, he imply he implies he's kept doing it though, because he said, "If something works for me, I keep it around." Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah, but there's got to yeah. have been a way to have, you know, made him look mischievous, but without like, 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 like that extreme. I don't. know. I think John Candy is fantastic, but I just think this was too much. This was. This was chewing scenery to such a strange extreme. Uh, and, and like we say, I think it, it really is only... They only do it on screen once as an adult. Yeah. And they only do it on screen once as a child. So that we know that that particular child actor is also, you know, uh, that that character. But, you know, everyone calls him by his name. So, <laughs> so I don't... Yeah. Know, John Candy gets, gets the and billing as well. You know, and John Candy as... Uh, Freddie Bauer. So we we know who he is. So you don't you don't need to do that to us. Like it's uh, you know, it doesn't feel like it, we really needed it. You know, um, and even the line about you know if something works, I keep doing it. It's like, well, how is it working? I mean, yeah. Yep. Was John Candy big at this time? Then was this? I, I'm trying to figure out where in the timeline. Uh, not SNL wise. I'm confusing with Chris Farley. I feel like, but uh, you know, where where was he at at this point in his career? Like was he also I mean, a, a big name to get the billing that he got? Oh yeah, no, no, he was at this point. I would say he again. He was probably bigger than Tom Hanks. That's why he's getting the end credit. I think. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, he done he done like a load of films um, throughout the the seventies. Um, he, he was in you know the Blues Brothers and Stripes okay. and National Lampoon's Vacation. Those were only small roles, I think. But you know, like he was he was known for he was known for that. And then you know later on he would go on to be kind of even bigger. Um, and like I said, he was the reason, you know, he'd done um, SCTV, uh, which was um, uh, kind of the kind of second city uh, TV, which was, um, uh, you know, like a TV show in uh, Canada, I think. Uh, um, Chicago. Also, yeah. Well, yeah, there was, yeah, there was kind of funded by the Canadian government for some reason. Uh, I guess because they're all Canadians on there. Well, 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 both SCTV and SNL took got a lot of comedians from Canada for, for different reasons, I think too, you know, I mean, SNL because Lord Michaels himself is from Canada, but, but, um, yeah, it's, yeah. Lord Michaels also sounds like Dr. Evil, yeah, of right. course. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So you, you had John Candy and Eugene Levy were on that together, obviously along with Rick Moranis, um, you know, and Harold, uh, Harold Ramis as well. Ramis even, uh, Martin Shaw, of course, and, uh, and Dave Thomas. So like all of the, all of them kind of worked together and they all kind of, kind of transferred um you know to america together and of course uh, Catherine o'hara was also on that as wow. she you know was recently on um 
on that other show with Eugene Levy. I've forgotten the name. Of it. I didn't watch it. Yes, that's it. <laughs> I, did, <laughs> I, I didn't watch that. I, I, I knew it was around for many years, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't watch it. Yeah. So, um, you know, they were all kind of they were all kind of well known for working together. Like I said, John Candy originally was going to play the kind of antagonist in this, mm. um, and you know, Ron Howard and Brian Grace were like, "No, we want you as the brother," uh, which I think works. Good um, choice. You know the, you know the. The kind of chemistry between the two of them. So well, I, li- I like um, him better than the other two biggest name people, I think, and what the one being John Goodman. Oh. And that would have been very young John Goodman too, for this. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you know, like, yeah, you know, you can only you can only vary so much in as far as their looks for the brothers. <laughs> can't. I think John God, John Goodman was, would have been a, a bit much too far. Yeah, <laughs> they. I think they even call it out later on in the gag when they're pretending to be the uh, the kind of Swedish yeah. scientists, and then they point out that Tom Hanks doesn't look Scandinavian at all. Uh, whereas I think kind of John Candy can pull it off a little bit because he is kind of a bit a bit more blonde haired and blue eyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but and also I think he can do a more kind of convincing Swedish accent. I don't think Tom Tom Hanks even tries it. But you know we'll talk about that once we get there. Um, so we get this flashback um, to 1964. Um, and uh, you know they're at Cape Cod, and Alan, um, who we find out later on doesn't know how to swim, jumps off the side of a boat and um, sees a young Madison uh, underwater. Uh, it's interesting that the child actors that play the young uh, Alan and the young Madison uh, ha- didn't have never played any other roles. This is the only roles they ever did. Oh wow! Um, yeah, so David Kreps is the young Alan, and uh, Shayla Makarchevich, I want to say. Um, is the young Madison, and these—that's their only roles. And apparently, the uh, the young girl, she was um, extremely upset when she was underwater because she had to be topless, obviously, because she's a you know a mermaid. Um, so it, it was quite traumatic for her spending time underwater, Gosh. and they had like a, a tail that was worked by uh, by people off screen with rods and stuff. Oh, um, well, well the, the, as we get the to, tail wasn't attached to her. Is the thing? I yeah, saw. well, it was just yeah. near her. Yeah, it's just near her and they just kind of move it about so it gives the impression. Whereas Daryl Hannah, which is kind of insane, uh, when she was younger, she was so fascinated with mermaids, she learned to swim with her legs together as if it was a tail. So, uh, born to the role, I think. When I was a kid, this was kind of one of the the things that kind of stood out to me about this film was this little sequence, because, like, you know, uh, Alan jumping overboard and then being rescued and everything. And also just the fact that it's sepia toned is so kind of weird. You know, in the sixties they had like color TV or whatever. Like it's not like you're flashing back to the nineteen thirties or something. It just feels like a weird choice just to kind of. I guess they want to make it clear it's a flashback, but they put on screen in you know in big letters. You know, twenty years ago Cape Cod. Um, so yeah, uh, he meets Madison, and obviously um, there's also this really weird gag which which kind of dominates the first kind of like I don't know ten minutes of the film once we get to the present day. Uh, which is just identified as current day, so you know could be twenty twenty one. Although uh, there's a there's a couple of landmarks that would suggest it's definitely not twenty twenty one. And we find out that Alan is running a very very busy produce warehouse where he seems to just be. I, I, I like I don't know what his role is meant to be because him and his brother seem to both be doing kind of all kinds of different jobs. Um, and there's a there's a funny running gag with his um, his receptionist who kind of takes phone messages but never passes them on um which you know they kind of they pay that off later on in the film which i thought was quite funny um and there's a there's a deal going down with mr byright um and then throughout this we get kind of two or two or three little phone calls with alan where he's talking to his girlfriend 
uh, Tom Hanks doing some very convincing um, other side of a phone conversation acting, <laughs> which as he kind of breaks up with Victoria, or Victoria breaks up with him, um, I you know, um, and by the time he gets home, you know, she's moved out. Like he's he's kind of not very happy. Um, we find out that one of his guys in the warehouse is um, is getting married the next day. Uh, and obviously, when we get to the wedding, there's a funny bit where people keep asking where Victoria is, and eventually Tom Hanks kind of snaps at uh, the final person to, who doesn't even ask the question, but he's getting sick of answering it, <laughs> so he kind of just like yells at this person. I mean, this whole deal with the whole Mr. Byright thing is really odd. There's like guys in suits, and it seems like maybe there's a hint of like a mafia type thing, or I, I, it feels like there was more there. But it's basically set up here and then paid off a couple of scenes later, and that's it. There's no. Like this is meant to be the biggest deal of the, you know, they're not just supplying, um, you know, one or two stores. They're supplying like the entire country, but it doesn't appear to have any kind of big effect on like Alan's life. Like it, it you know, you would think something like that would, would, you know, it'd be worth millions, um, even tens of millions, and it would change their lives. But instead, he's kind of looking at some cherries that were a bit slimy. And I didn't realize that it was so big time it seemed like they were kind of struggling and then you kind of get to later on in the movie where the they're invited to the president's dinner or whatever and i'm like wait a second how how big are these guys i don't under you know it, it was one of the, the things out the film that just baffled me and i and i get the feeling that like at some point there's the mention of their father and it, and it was his business is that right so yeah so yeah. I almost feel like they're kind of just trying to keep it going. You know, they're trying. You know, they're yeah. they're doing their best. They they're doing what they're used to doing when they were younger. You know, ten or so years before when they were teens or something, I think. And you know, and they, and they were very much hands on at that point. They were learning the ropes. They had to go through all the all the stuff to kind of uh, understand the business. I think. So so they've stayed doing a lot of the uh, you know the um, what's what oh what's the very uh, micromanagement you know kind of mm-hmm. thing where yeah. where you know and that's something that's something almost all businesses have to learn business owners i think have to learn to to, to step away and hire the right people and they'll run the company for you essentially if you're smart enough yeah and i think as well when they go into they go into um they're going to alan's office and john candy keeps like faffing with stuff on his desk and Tom Hanks like screams at him and he says you know like there's a system to the stuff on the desk don't touch it and um, this is maybe this is I I don't know if this is just a thing that's in 80s comedies but there was a point in 80s comedies where people would scream at each other quite a lot like that seemed to be if people didn't really have like solid gags it would just be have two people screaming at each other and there's in this scene there's no real jokes like it's just Tom Hanks kind of getting worked up and John Candy getting worked up and there's just kind of like this this interaction between the two of them like yelling at each other but it there's no like punchlines or anything being delivered it's just it's just them yelling about the business um so it's 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 just kind of a weird thing but i guess they're kind of trying like you say they said you know the father died in the flashback which is really funny um there's a there's a point where um they had well where um thingy gets caught doesn't he uh what's the uh freddie freddie gets caught doing the change trick and his mother kind of like says, you know, like kind of brings his father and says, you know, talk to him. And his father just slaps him in the head. And she goes, that's it. Listen to your father. And it's like that was the talk was him just slapping him in the head. Um, so, yeah, so it did kind of make me question why are they trying to keep this like produce, you know, built kind of business going um, if they just kind of inherited it. And they just, you know, neither of them really seemed that particularly 
you know, like interested in it. Um, you know, Freddie seems more interested in kind of like wheeling and dealing, but not not the ins and outs. Like he keeps talking about this deal with the buy right, and he's like, "Oh, I'll review it. I'll review it." But he never seems to actually get around to reviewing it. Um, so yeah, they don't really see. They don't seem like this is their passion. It just seems like an inherited business. Um, and fortunately for us, um, it pretty much doesn't really make that much impact into the rest of the story. No, after this, absolutely not. After this, <laughs> after this opening, they go to the trouble of setting up this whole warehouse thing. I think it's only really because they want to do the kind of co-worker wedding. You know, like that's, you know, the, this guy comes in and says, oh, I'm getting married tomorrow night. And, you know, like they, they kind of, that gives them the excuse to be at this wedding and for Tom Hanks to yell about Victoria um, and then get drunk and kind of depressed and morose. Um, and then decide that he's going to take a cab ride all the way to Cape Cod, which is like, uh, that's just an insane, like, it's such an insane thing for him to just do, like, just to just to be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to, like, a, a ride that is like hundreds of dollars and hundreds of miles, and that's going to take like four hours. And it's, you know, like, it's insane to me because, you know, if you took a cab ride in the UK for four hours, you would be literally at the other side of the country, like, that's it. <laughs> Um, you know, you'd be at the very tip of Scotland, uh, so it's just it's just crazy that like he just decides on a whim to kind of travel to um, to Cape Cod. I think obviously as a viewer, um, you kind of already know why he's drawn back to Cape Cod, but uh, you know it takes them another kind of like 15, 20 minutes before they really kind of hit upon you know why he's kind of drawn back to uh, to Cape Cod. I, I I don't know that there's much to say about the kind of like the bar scene. Um, you know, it's just kind of like John. I mean. I'll say this: John Candy is kind of charming in it, and uh, and you know I do kind of enjoy it. So, uh, anyone's thoughts about you know the kind of the schmoozing in the bar? I will say I felt like it went on maybe a little too long. The the jokes about him just basically like making people uncomfortable because he was so ridiculously drunk and like sad about his girlfriend. There were that went on for a while, and like multiple people. So I wasn't as fond of that maybe like it's not that I didn't like the joke it's just that I kind of after a while I was like all right now I'm just feeling uncomfortable for these people they also kind of call back to earlier where John Candy had um I, th- I think is it in the first when he arrives at the warehouse scene he's got like a handful of um <laughs> penthouse forum because he's finally had his letter published um and he's like giving them out to people and it's <laughs> and then and then he kind of calls back to that a little bit in the bar where he's and it's just such a it's like i, I don't I, like i don't even know that like letters to penthouse was that big of a thing at that point in the 80s but it's just it's i don't know it just ma- it makes john candy's character feel a lot more sleazy than it needs to be like you know we get it you're like he's a ladies man you know like they they start making jokes about the fact that he's been married like a number of times and that he brought a date to his own wedding and stuff like that and it's it's like yeah we get it he's you know they're kind of almost going against the stereotype you, you'd almost expect that like Tom Hanks is kind of like the charming ladies man whereas you know John Candy is not but they're you know it's it's nice that they're, they're kind of going against the stereotype but yeah like you say at a certain point that bar scene does get a little bit more uncomfortable and you're like I think we understand like I, you know he's sad about I Victoria. will say the penthouse letter was one of the biggest laughs I had in the movie though I can't remember what it was called but it was something like 
lesbian no more or something that he called it. Uh, I, oh, yeah. Um, I thought it was a... I want to know what that story was about. Yeah, I, I, I thought think. it was a like, hilariously spot-on like penthouse letter title. Um, so I, I did enjoy that gag. Uh, well, I think it's meant to be... It's weird because I feel like it's a play on Spider-Man no more. Like, it's literally like meant to be like a, a comic book reference. But I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it's just a title of a... Uh, you know, a penthouse letter that they just found and put into the script. Um, but yeah, so Tom Hanks, he's sad, and off he goes to um, Cape Cod. Well, if, if I could, real, if I could, real quick, the, uh, for, for the cab ride though to Cape Cod, I was also in in the most in this recent rewatch I did about a month ago, maybe. Uh, I, I definitely, while I was watching, I had to pause it even. I'm pretty sure, and just take the time and and, and figure out what what I eventually found out more much more recently here uh, is uh, you know this you know what what the distance was and so forth. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, it just kind of did boggle my mind a bit as an adult watching this and, and thinking about okay, yeah, I mean, how far? I mean, that has to be farther away than what I probably figured as a kid. You know, I mean. As a kid, okay, maybe it's an hour away or something. It makes it it makes it sound like he's just going like from Manhattan to Brooklyn, yeah. but it's it's no it's idea. not that. And also, like the there's a funny bit of business as well with the cab driver where he, you know, he says that he wants to go to Cape Cod and he puts the brake on and Tom Hanks smacks into the plastic like divider and then and then as he gets up he's like, hey, don't break the window and he's like, yeah, that's what I often do when I get into a cab is break the window with my face. It's like. Um, and then as he like pulls off, you know, like because he he says, you know, have you got the money? And he shows him the money, and then he immediately pulls off, and the force pushes Tom Hanks back. Um, so there's you know some nice kind of physical comedy that I thought Tom Hanks did there. Um, yeah, and then we get to Eugene Levy as Doctor Walter Cornbluth, um, and he's on the beach with these two kind of like uh, people who are helping him move his equipment. And now the funny thing is, he says that uh, the equipment is like specialist equipment, and there's a whole thing about like the box has got this side up and everything. And in the end, I don't, I don't know that he has any specialist equipment. He just has like diving stuff, and I don't know maybe it's oxygen tanks. I don't know. I don't know what he was moving that like kind of required. I, it's just a lot of kind of like physical comedy stuff. Something that Eugene Levy will do a ton of in this in this film as it goes on, um, and he gets gradually more and more beaten up uh, as as the movie progresses. Um, but yeah, so there's you know there's a whole bit with him and and then kind of I don't know I, this is kind of you know I, I feel like every film is allowed one coincidence and you can go oh, okay that's a coincidence and you can kind of write it off and you don't have to worry about it and once they start doing two or three or four then you know that's when the film kind of falls apart so I'm fine with the coincidence that he happens to be on this beach hunting for mermaids at the same time that Alan just turns up in his tuxedo <laughs> in this taxi and mm-hmm. just wanders onto the same beach as as Dr. Walter Cornbluth and you know so, so I'm I'm happy I'm happy with that being a coincidence and, and, but, and the fact that uh, Alan is a guy who has seen a mermaid I mean even though he doesn't believe he really did we know he did yeah or yeah. at some point you know. again t- yeah, the fact that a mermaid hunter is on the beach as the same guy as who, who's seen a mermaid is a huge coincidence. But I, you know, I think it just works. I think you've got to kind of get to this point where Cornbluth is the antagonist, um, you know, to um, you know, to to kind of Alan, uh, you know, and you've kind of got to arrive at that pretty quick. And I think that you know, this is, I'm, I'm going to imagine that basically Cornbluth is on that beach pretty much every single day. So it didn't matter which day Alan went there, you know, and he's only on that beach because. It's near where he thinks the mermaids live, 
and so that's why he's there and obviously Alan goes there because you know he's kissed a mermaid underwater as a kid and and that draws him back so you know, I'm willing to write that off as a coincidence and and just kind of have it but I, I do like the kind of interaction between the two of them the kind of paranoia from Eugene Levy who's just like you know who sent you here and, and all this kind of like questioning and, and Tom Hanks is just like kind of like playing you know mildly drunk kind of be- bewildered guy and he's just like I, you know it's like I'm just you know here because I like the beach or whatever like it's you know so I thought that was that's kind of funny and then you know the whole kind of thing with the boat um you know where the guy takes him out and and then kind of basically I I don't I don't even know why they do this but like it's it's a, again it's a little bit of a contrivance that the, the guy who's taking him out on the boat kind of like deliberately kind of banks it a couple of times and it takes on some water um and then you know like the boat stops working and Tom Hanks is basically just kind of stranded on a boat um in 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 you know just just kind of out in the water uh, by himself <laughs> Um, and that kind of then leads to him trying to start the boat himself and it does start and then of course he flies out the boat again some kind of nice physical cat comedy from Tom Hanks um, and then by coincidence the boat uh, even though it's not directed by anyone the engine kind of t- t- banks around and <laughs> seems to chase him down and he gets hit on the head um, and then kind of you know wakes up on the beach um, but yeah so I'm you know it's it, again it's a bit of a contrivance but I'm kind of I'm kind of happy to kind of just get the plot moving a little bit quicker because you know we've had a lot of stuff about produce and cherries and buy right and you know penthouse letters and stuff so it, it's nice to finally kind of get a bit closer to um, you know the introduction of of what will become Madison but for the moment you know she has no name um, and she has no voice um, so, so I so I have a rule of only one personified you know item thing <laughs> can 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 be in a movie at a time <laughs> you know i mean that's you know that's what that motor motor is you know it's it's that it has this personification to it that it's trying to attack alan i mean I, I like i think combining that with the fact that he never learned to swim which i think is again too much I, I, it's a it feels like it's a little too like I mean have him just be a, a a poor swimmer maybe you know like someone who can tread water for a couple of minutes but you know just the fact that he's he's immediately not I mean he seems able to swim because he avoids the boat a couple of times before getting hit in the head by it um, but yeah so but I mean I don't know how do how do you feel uh, I definitely thought it took too long I remember at some point in this movie being like we are nowhere near the ocean. I can't believe, like, we've got to somehow meet a mermaid, and I have no idea how we're going to get there. I can't believe we're this far into the movie. Um, but I know they wanted to establish the characters. I, I don't know if it was strictly necessary, but this is also not a long movie, so I, I guess it may have also just been some padding. I I thought that the, the boat thing was actually kind of scary. I don't think that that's necessarily impossible that that would happen but anyway it seemed like it would cause a much more serious injury than he had I was like what about yeah, the motor right? I, I think it hits his head and he starts to fall backwards before the motor gets near him but yeah the motor would be more dangerous than the the, 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 the you know the front of the boat hitting yeah. him, which I believe sailors call the stern <laughs> Um, but yeah so i you know i it, it's it's just a weird coincidence but yeah like you say it takes us like i think almost 25 minutes into what is effectively about a, a you know a, an hour and 40 minutes of a film to actually get to the mermaid um who is pictured on the poster 
Um, you know, and I feel it's worth mentioning at this point that um, you know, on the poster they they really spelt out what was going to happen in this film as well. So, um, you know, if the only thing you'd seen was the poster, um, you you'd be like, when is this going to happen? Because the the tagline, and this is this is this is going to sound like I'm starting to read a novel, but the tagline was. Uh, two days ago, this girl showed up naked at the Statue of Liberty. For Alan Bauer, it was love at first sight. Now everyone is chasing her, trying to prove she's a mermaid. <laughs> From the first laugh, you'll be hooked. That's that's a, you know that's a, a lot of words to be putting onto a poster. Like that is that is a writer who wanted to go home by midnight. Like <laughs> he said, hey, yeah. hey, make up a tagline. Oh yeah, uh, sure. Forgets eleven fifty nine. Bam. That's it. That's the tagline. Well, well, one of the other taglines was Alan Bauer thought he'd never find the right woman. He was only half wrong, which I think is... That's not bad. You know, Ooh. that's kind of like a... Yeah. Yeah, that's a play. Um, and then there's another one which is, um, she was the woman of his dreams. She had large, dark eyes, which I don't think is correct. I think Daryl Hannah's <laughs> got... I don't think she's got, like, dark eyes. Uh, a beautiful smile and a great pair of fins. <laughs> See, that okay. you thought I was going somewhere and it didn't. Um, because this is a Disney film. I mean, you know, so yeah, we're waiting for the mermaid. Where is the mermaid? Um, you know, as they said on The Simpsons, when are we getting to the fireworks factory? And finally, we are we are there. Um, and I will say this as a I don't know, 11, 12 year old boy when I first saw this film, uh, I think one of the things that certainly attracted it to you know this film to me was the idea that Daryl Hannah would be at some point walking around <laughs> naked um, because you know she's she's got to be naked at some point because mermaids are at least naked you know from you know the, the, the kind of the middle up and but of course being this being a PG film um, there is only very brief nudity um, so and the weird thing is some of the brief nudity that we see in this particular scene recently. Right. Disney owners of Touchstone, and this was the first ever Touchstone film that was uh, that was released. Uh, because of the nudity, uh, they created a separate studio just to kind of release this because Disney could not release uh, PG films at the time. Um, I think they're okay at the moment now. I think they can they can do PG films. It has been changed on Disney Plus. They've digitally added more hair so that you cannot see the buttocks of of Daryl Hannah. So, uh, so which is so, such a uh, go ahead a weird choice. So so when I watched this a month ago, it was on Disney Plus, and I didn't know it was coming <laughs> that that it was going to be altered. I certainly kind of realized I'm like this is not how I remember it, but it also it wasn't there. It wasn't noticeable. It wasn't noticeable by me, you know. And and, and you know Henry Cavill's m- mustache also isn't noticeable by me. I really don't have a problem with that. So <laughs> so I really didn't have a problem with this either. But I do have a in 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 the execution, but that it was executed is what I do I do have the bigger problem with so I, I am definitely looking forward to some point next few months probably trying to trying to get a hands on of uh, the unaltered I could help you with that um, and we get this kind of you know Tom Hanks uh, he wakes up on the beach still in his tuxedo of course uh, his head hurting um, and he kind of looks over in the bushes and you just see I, I, I would say this the, the shots of um, Daryl Hannah, they did seem a little bit like on a soundstage. <laughs> like she didn't seem to be at the beach with him, uh, which when she was hiding behind the bushes, which is a, which is kind of a bit weird. Uh, I'd never noticed that before. Um, but yeah, so you know she's kind of hiding and being, you know, he's kind of trying to talk to her, obviously because 
and I feel like it you know it doesn't need to be kind of stated out loud but I think I should Daryl Hannah is insanely beautiful like it's <laughs> like just in that's one of the things as well you know as a teenage boy it's not just that Daryl Hannah is going to be naked it's, it's Daryl Hannah you're like oh my god she's uh, you know in, insanely beautiful uh, even to this day I would say um, but you know and and so he obviously falls in love with her which he doesn't realise he's already fell in love with her but as a viewer I think we already know that he has fell in love with her so there is a little bit of kind of us being a little bit ahead of the protagonist here um, and then obviously he tr- you know he tries to kind of uh, talk to her but you know she, she only speaks in mermaid so she obviously can't speak any English and so, <laughs> so she just kisses him and uh, he he's kind of like you know kind of puzzled a little bit but then she kisses him again and then you know she she kind of goes off into the ocean while he's trying to kind of get her to stay um trying to get her name and you know kind of is is kind of puzzled by all, all what's going on exactly um and then i do like that there's the, the kind of the if you don't know that she's a mermaid which i i mean you know the title of the film is splash it, i feel like it's kind of obvious but you know we are like kind of half an hour in here and they haven't shown us any mermaid and then in the i like that the kind of the introduction of it is just in the background as she swims away Tom Hanks kind of turns his back and you see the tail come out of the water very kind of quickly because obviously while she's on land she has legs um, and and so I thought that was kind of ni- that's also a nice idea like the idea that you know mermaids on land have legs and then when they get into salt water they turn into it turns into a tail like I think that's something that up until this point hadn't really been part of mermaid lore to my knowledge um, you know so it kind of you know it kind of made it interesting that that then becomes the kind of um, the thing that you know when she's walking about obviously he doesn't realise she's a mermaid but then of course that's what causes Eugene Levy to gradually go crazier and crazier as the film progresses is his attempt to kind of bring the tale out basically <laughs> um, but yeah so I don't know I just I love this introduction of, of Daryl Hannah like I said as a, as a kind of 11 12 year old boy I was certainly enraptured with her and, and you know she is you know if you if you think if you're going to have like the idea that you know, obviously the kind of the myth of mermaids is that they would tempt people to the sea. So the idea that she is tempting kind of um, Alan to kind of come to the sea, I, th- you know, uh, Daryl Hannah is the kind of person where you'd be like, you know, I'd be willing to not see anybody else in the entire world and just live as a merman with her for the rest <laughs> of my life. Like that seems like a, a fairly good deal. Um, you know, get out of the big city, the rat race. Um, but yeah, so I don't know how, how does everybody else feel about uh, you know Daryl Hannah and, and kind of you know the kind of the way they introduce uh, the character and, and also the, they kind of subtly introduce the idea of a you know, a mermaid. So this is like a really good example of that trope that I think people call born sexy yesterday, which is not my favorite trope. It's yeah. like the same thing you see in the Fifth Element, or I mean, even like way back to like the time machine it's really common in sci-fi and fantasy where it's like oh this woman i found she's beautiful but she can't speak and she has to learn everything from me and she's also naked and doesn't even know that her nakedness is so sexy and you know it's um it's not my favorite trope it has obviously some kind of harmful implications uh and i don't i don't really like the whole like the the way that it immediately puts her into this like childlike position with a with basically a man to just teach her everything and for her to be completely dependent on him for everything this movie doesn't do it as badly as some like the fifth element do because she kind of quickly 
becomes a speaking very quickly becomes a speaking character that has like a normal level of intelligence <laughs> so it's not as bad as it could be but I'm that is actually my biggest issue with the film is that it um that it's such a strong example of that trope and she doesn't seem yeah. to be like a fully dimensional woman or I mean character well we can even just say character I just I think that's pretty ridiculous I mean this is kind of well, probably not just kind of like the Little Mermaid, you know, Disney's original, not original, original, but Disney's original Little Mermaid, which did which did this better, you know. This I just feel like, you know, as Kelly said, it puts it puts Daryl Hannah in a childlike position, and he falls in love with her without her really talking. I was sometimes, you know, I'd watch the scenes they're walking around the city you know, going to the fountain, whatever, and I'm thinking, like, they didn't have a conversation walking to the fountain. They weren't, you know, he wasn't falling in love with her mind at all, and that's just, that that's just too much for me. Yeah, and those characters always have to be a nymphomaniac, too, you know, and, like, it's, it's not, like I said, it's not my favorite thing, um, but at least this movie has kind of a, um, like, a magical element of like destiny and true love that I can sort of use like a suspension of disbelief like well they're in love Mm -hmm. because they've got this like magical love at first sight situation going on but yeah yeah he 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 took to her kissing him very very quickly I mean you say (laughs) that oh you know he was puzzled maybe for two seconds but then he really got into the like oh this is like my girlfriend now and yeah, very quickly after his breakup, it was it was interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean, I'll agree that the the like the fact that she can't speak uh, for the first few scenes where they're together, uh, it does kind of raise some issues with regards to consent because there. Were, I mean, we're not going to talk about it right now, but you know, when we get when we get to after the police pickup, uh, there's something obviously that I feel needs to be brought up there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say it's kind of interesting because she she swims down, she finds his wallet. And from that, she kind of works out how to kind of go track him down. So I don't know. She's kind of I don't. I mean, it's very thin, but she's given just a tiny bit of agency in that. You know, she you know she could easily just stay there and just never go find him again after kissing him a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does kind of you know kind of go and seek him out. Um, you know, so it's not like she yeah. just. I mean, again, it, there's also a different issue which is raised, which I you know I think uh, you know is uh, IMDb goofs, which is how does he get home if he hasn't got a wallet like yeah he's got no money no credit cards like no nothing so he noticed it was um, gone yeah yeah so it's so he somehow ends up back in new york and then she kind of tracks him down using his wallet and like kind of using his information from there um so and then you know uh before she does that though of course she runs into uh cornbluth under the sea um, and he frantically tries to take a picture of her, um, and she just kind of like swims away, and he can't like get his underwater camera to work. Um, uh, and there's also some kind of business where, um, you know, later on he's he's kind of out on the water with his two kind of like idiot companions, and they're they've got like a rocking chair for some reason that's like squeezing his his air so that he can't breathe underwater. So he has to kind of come up and say, "Get off my like air pipe so I can breathe." 
Um, and then he kind of lectures them because they're like reading, you know, the New York Post or whatever. And then on the front of the New York Post is Madison. So, you know, that's that's how he kind of ends up going back to the city uh, and kind of stops you know, driving around Cape Cod trying to find her. Um, but the fact that obviously he's seen her now um, and he's this is kind of what starts the main I would say the main engine of the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's taken us like, I don't know, 35 minutes to get there. <laughs> but, you know, the fact that Cornbluth knows that she definitely exists and um, also Alan knows she exists but not as a mermaid so those are the two kind of different um, kind of storylines that we have you know most of the rest of the film Um, you know and then Madison turns up um, on Ellis Island uh, at the the base of the Statue of of Liberty um, you know a gift given to the New Yorkers by the French people uh, for nude women everywhere as the as the, the the introduction guy says um, and then we get I, what's weird about this scene is it's like this to me this feels worse than anything else in the film which is where like this crowd kind of gathers around this naked woman and starts taking pictures of her and I'm like well I I mean I kind of guess that that would have happened but it's just you know and that is kind of the, the kind of the way that it ends up in the papers as well you know uh, front front page news apparently bit of a slow day slow news day in New York City um, but still, it that kind of feels like the most kind of sleazy part of the film, where all these different guys are all like suddenly out of nowhere. Have, I guess they're on they're on the Statue of Liberty, so I guess you know they were taking pictures of that. But they all suddenly start taking selfies uh, with this with the, with kind of the naked Madison before the police kind of uh, intervene and, and escort her off Ellis Island uh, and and dress her up. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's it's the kind of the easiest way to get the plot going. You know, the fact that they the police, you know, kind of apprehend her and then uh, give uh, give Alan a call, um, which again is a bit convenient. But you know, he yeah. dropped his wallet. She picked up his wallet. So that that feels more natural than uh, the kind of the coincidence of him just going to Cape Cod for no reason um, at the same time as Cornbluth. Um, I start. I started trying to imagine like what would have actually happened in in real life if you know if if a naked woman just went out there. You know, I just I don't. Is is that really what would have happened? You know, the whole crowding her or I, kind of what I was expecting was like a you know offended women. You know, middle aged offended women kind of be like, oh my goodness, you know, whatever kind of stuff i didn't know what i was expecting to happen but it was not that yeah it's funny because there was talk a few years ago i say a few years ago like 2018 <laughs> feels feels more than a few years ago at this point uh of rebooting this film brian yeah. grazer apparently had spoken to some studios and i think that scene in 2021 would obviously you know everyone's phones would be out instantly it feels like it would be even more kind of intrusive uh whereas you know people with cameras out uh, like I said, they're on they're on Ellis Island. They're you know taking pictures of the Statue of Liberty. It kind of makes sense, um, and I do appreciate like the location shooting. Clearly, they're at the Statue of Liberty. Like they, you know, they're so that's you know that's a nice touch that they they are actually kind of on location. Um, but it I don't know. It's just a kind of uncomfortable scene. But I guess it's kind of necessary to to get us to the point where she can track down Alan without having to speak. You know, the fact that she's got his wallet. Uh, it's kind of a shortcut to kind of get to that point um, and then we see uh, Mr. Byright um, kind of come in to seal the deal and uh, my my main note from this was just the fact that they have so many like patterned suits and ties going on uh, John Candy's got one Mr. Byright's got one one of his like Mr. Byright's like associates has got one and I was like that's a lot of that's a lot of patterns going on uh, on screen 
while Tom Hanks kind of just runs runs away very quickly. Um, and again, there's this kind of weird subplot where apparently to seal the deal with Mr. Byright, they had to pretend that Tom Hanks was a Vietnam vet and that he's got like, I don't know, PTSD from like a grenade to the head or something. Uh, and, you know, John Candy kind of has to make an excuse as to why he's took this phone call and suddenly like left in the middle of the deal. Uh, and again, that was just a kind of weird. It goes nowhere because that's the end of the whole Byright storyline. Like it's it's kind of yeah. done now. Like there's no kind of further references to it really. Uh, it doesn't have any kind of impact on the rest of the film. So, uh, but yeah, it was just kind of weird. It was almost kind of like a sitcommy. You know, like the boss is coming over for lunch, and you know it goes disastrously wrong. But nothing goes disastrously wrong. Yeah. It just, <laughs> just quickly gets there in the car and drives off. They stuffed it in there, but I feel like there must be some deleted scenes that can explain some of these these elements of the story that aren't even important in the end. Yeah, so that was kind of weird. And uh, one touch I did notice as well is obviously uh, once he arrives at the police station um, and starts ringing the bell like a lot. Like he tries to get people's attention and I just like that he just starts ringing this bell on the desk and it like annoys, annoys a cop enough that he's like, okay, what the hell do you want? Um, and, you know, they, they kind of like, he, he says that, you know, he's he had a phone call. He's, you know, he's Alan, Alan Bauer, you know, who called for him. And they're like, yeah, it's to pick up this lady. And they kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you've got Madison sitting in a, you know, I Heart New York t-shirt. And I don't know if, I don't know if this may be just something I picked up, but it feels like the people, the, like the ladies next to her are meant to be prostitutes who've been picked up. Like, it feels like that's meant to be the vibe, that she's kind of among this group of prostitutes. Um, I don't know, maybe, and uh, you know, that feels like kind of, you know, typical kind of like uh, sleazy New York, but I don't know, there was just a weird kind of touch that I thought that, like, the way that they were dressed seemed to be kind of deliberately implying something. Um, you know, and of course, she, uh, seeing Alan, she just kisses him straight away. Um, and then obviously they go home. Um, and then this is something that I wanted to discuss, which is when they get home obviously uh, there's some kind of implication that maybe they do something more than kissing uh, with this being you yeah. know, a Disney film and PG they don't really kind of go into it but there's an implication that time passes and they've done more than kiss and I think with the fact that she can't speak it does kind of bring up the issue there of consent uh, you know for me um... well, and that, that he that he knows that she can't speak I think is, is is a key indicator there that, that they add that, as an issue. Well, I mean, so he thinks she's from another country, but not like, not like a complete... Yeah. So, I think he assumes this isn't like her first rodeo, and there are non-verbal ways to give consent. She seems pretty keen. So I actually... Um, it's definitely good to find a way to communicate with somebody before you have sex with them, but it it didn't bother me that uh, it didn't bother me that much. Um, I've got I, honestly, yeah. I think it's set, it's setting her up as like the, the the not the aggressor, but it's setting her up as the one that she's been kissing him first. So you know that th- things just develop because of that. So I don't know, which I'm not saying is right or wrong or whatever. It's super weird but i'm kind of wondering like could he really not take a day off work instead of like leaving this woman prisoner in his apartment <laughs> that was my bigger <laughs> issue with it um but yeah yeah 
Yeah, there is this. I mean, this is something that uh, I think kind of also happens. This is might seem like a weird tangent, but also happens in Short Circuit, uh, where Johnny Five is kind of left alone with the television and a dictionary and basically learns everything. Um, and so they kind of do, you know, Madison's. She starts watching TV at his um, apartment, um, but then I think then she yeah. like ventures out, doesn't she? And she's, you know, he he, he goes off singing uh, Zippity Doodah, which I is a I mean, I kind of know why they chose it, which is because it's a Disney song and they don't have to pay any rights for it. <laughs> so he can just sing it as much as he wants. But the fact that it's from, I don't know, it, it just, it just, it's just a, it's a weird, it's a weird choice. And he sings it like constantly for the next like two or three scenes. He's, he's nonstop singing that song. Um, and it's like, it's, I mean, I don't know that in the 80s, Disney particularly cared about anybody um, knowing about Song of the South, but... I don't think it was available for distribution and it certainly hadn't been in cinemas for a yeah. while. So um, it's just odd that they chose... I mean, he could have sang any other Disney song, but, uh, you know, they went with Zippity Doodah. The, the song, like, took on a life of its own and I think even the animated segments were... Were, where that which included that song were being circulated outside of Sound of the South. Like, I definitely had some childhood VHS that it was on and it was not Song of the South to be no. clear um, <laughs> so yeah but like I grew up knowing that song and everything yeah I mean I, I mean I, I mean you know seeing it from 2021 it, it just see it seems a little a bit odd that, that that's the kind of the song that they picked um, but I should say as well Song of the South has never been withdrawn from circulation in the UK you can easily oh. get hmm. copies of it on on VHS, it was a, it was on VHS all the way up until the time when they stopped selling VHS. So uh, it's not it's not that much of an issue over here. Um, but yeah, and so obviously she she goes out, she learns a few words, she sees an advert for Bloomingdale's. Uh, I don't know if this was a paid promotion, um, but she sees an advert for Bloomingdale's, and much like a different Tom Hanks character, a few years down the line, she goes to a major department store. Um, and what I kind of like as well is like the sale. Well, I mean, there's one thing I don't like in the scene, but kind of the saleswoman is like, you know, you know, what are you dressed like basically? And, and then kind of suggests that she kind of buys some dresses and then suggests she goes get some lingerie. Um, but in the middle of it, she kind of makes a joke about how like Daryl Hannah is anorexic. And I'm like, yeah, ooh, oh boy, that's not age well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a casual like oh you know you look you look fine because you look anorexic and it's like oh like yeah so uh, that was just a kind of a thing but I, I do kind of I love the kind of Bloomingdale sequence it's like one of my favourite things about this film it's just the fact that she uh, this kind of like I don't know maybe I'm also a huge fan of the film Mannequin so maybe I just like people wandering around like large department stores in America um, just kind of being you know kind of staring at stuff in wonder um, and then she works out to Richard Simmons on the TV for like six hours <laughs> and she has that routine down I should say as well Daryl Hannah is not just like making up moves she's actually copying what's on the television uh kind of perfectly even when she turns away from the television while the guys are talking to her she she still keeps doing the routine and uh, so i you know i was kind of impressed by that um and then we kind of get like i don't know probably one of the more kind of well-known jokes from this film um you know obviously uh, you know uh alan returns home Madison's missing so he kind of you know in a panic goes to the doorman the doorman says oh yeah i put her in a taxi to bloomies Tom Hanks does this weird thing where he just runs after a taxi. The taxi doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, he just he just goes taxi and then just kind of runs after it. And I was like, 
just stop and hail a taxi, but why chase that one taxi down? Just a, a weird bit of business that they did. Um, and then, of course, he, you know, he 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 runs into Bloomingdale's as it's being, you know, as they, and the guy at the door says, "We're closing," and he's like, "Oh, I'll be three minutes. Time me," and he just runs off. And I'm like, it's it's weird. It's, it's like, why does that guy care if Tom Hanks? Like everybody will be out of the store when it closes. So why does the guy care if Tom Hanks is running like five minutes before it closes? Um, you know, and then obviously he finds Madison pretty quickly, which. I don't know. Bloomingdale seems like it's quite a big store, so I don't know how quickly he would actually uh, happen upon her. But you know, he does. Um, and then this is where, like, they do the kind of probably one of my favourite gags, which is like, you know, he says, "Oh, she can't speak a word of English," and then he immediately, and immediately she goes, "Hello, Alan. How was your day?" And and I just kind of like, I don't know. It's just one of my favourite types of gags where someone says something and then is directly contradicted. So, um, you know, and and then of course. Um, you know, while they're talking, and you know, she says that she's kind of learned, you know, how to speak English, you know, from TV. Um, she then, you know, he says, you know, what's your name? And, and this is where she's like, well, you know, you can't really say it in English. And, and then I love when he goes, just well, say it in your language. And of course, it's just a series of extremely high pitched screeches, um, and all of the televisions just start like exploding. Um, and and this and the the button on the scene is just really weird, where <laughs> Tom Hanks is like. What about those Yankees? <laughs> like, as if as if they don't notice that all these TVs have exploded. Um, so yeah. So I, I I mean I kind of I just like that this is kind of uh, finally we've managed to reach a point where you know Daryl Hannah actually gets to do more than just kind of kiss Tom Hanks um, and kind of look lovingly at him. And now you know she gets a chance to uh, kind of you know be as charming as she can be um, and also uh, deliver some jokes where you know they're walking down the street and she <laughs> she says. The, the, you know, she kind of goes into like a game show host mode where she's where she, where she talks about questions and you know you could win this and that and, and I, I thought that was quite funny that it's like of course she's you know she's learned stuff off TV so she you know she's got words and sentence structure but she doesn't sometimes understand like what she's saying which I thought was quite uh, you know quite amusing. Uh, uh, the, the the first button though back in Bloomingdale's in the in the TV department there with the uh, salesman that. Uh, that really pulls it off for me that that gag of her speaking or not speaking English, you know, and, and the salesman says back to them, "Sir, I think that was English," you know. Correct <laughs> yeah. me if I'm wrong. That was English. Yeah, because I didn't go to college, but that yeah. sounds like yeah. English to me. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a nice little kind of interaction. But yeah, I, and I think the guy I don't know who the actors are who play the salesman, but they they really kind of. The one guy goes to like interrupt her while she's exercising. <laughs> she won't stop exercising. He walks up to his, his co-worker and he's just like, "She's just finishing up, you know, exercise." Like he kind of, you know, just plays it off as if like they've had a discussion about the exercising, but uh, clearly they haven't. Um, but yeah, so I mean, this is kind of where we. I mean, again, it's probably a trope that people aren't, you know, that particularly happy about. But I feel we do kind of start to stray a little bit into manic pixie dream girl territory. Uh, just with the way that um, she starts acting, um, but I would say at the same time, Daryl Hannah is kind of so charming, like in the the kind of way she plays it, that uh, it kind of works. Um, but again, there's also more of a kind of like like we said, like a kind of magical element that they are kind of like connected from when they met when they were kind of uh, children, and also there is the kind of the undercurrent that she is she's hiding from him the fact that she is a mermaid, um, and then they for some reason they just put a ticking clock in which is she's got six days you know by the next full moon if she if she you know 
if she doesn't leave, then then that's it, and I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, that was brought up way too casually. Just stop introducing new mermaid lore that you just made up. I just that's bizarre. I I've suspended so much disbelief, and. I don't know, that's my button. <laughs> Which I understand, because obviously they have to put some stakes in place for when uh, Cornbluth is kind of like stalking them and trying to find her. Uh, and there needs to be like an element of danger that like, you know, uh, she's got to leave. And if he prevent, you know, if Cornbluth catches up to them and prevents her from leaving, then, you know, uh, she's going to, I don't know, die or whatever. Like, uh, they're never fully clear on exactly what's going to happen. Uh, or she'll, I don't know, permanently have legs or permanently not have a tail. I, like, I, I'm not sure that they were really that clear on it, but it just feels like, you know, they put this little clock on it um, as a way to speed up the relationship between Alan and Madison. Um, you know, and and kind of make it so that they have to kind of, you know, they have like their first kind of like argument and then they kind of like break up and then they kind of get back together and then they agree to get married. And Like it feels like the only reason that everything's going by so quickly is because there is this kind of timer of, of like, you know, in the next six days, um, you know, something's going to happen and she's not going to be a mermaid anymore or she will be a mermaid permanently or I, I don't know. They never really specific on it, and then of course this is where we get they're kind of walking around Times Square, kind of like ba- uh, uh, the geography of it doesn't really make any sense. They seem to they seem to keep crossing from corner to corner without any real direction, mm-hmm. and they they kind of almost cause a crash, um, and then kind of like a belligerent taxi. I mean, belligerent taxi drivers are also kind of like you know uh, uh, much like in most kind of New York films they feel like a, another character because there's so many of them in this film like they're all belligerent all the time um, so she nearly causes a crash and this taxi driver gets out and Tom Hanks is like kind of immediately goes into like the kind of New York hey she's from out of town she doesn't know like like kind of defending her straight away uh, which I thought was nice and then of course we get kind of probably one of the more I would say as well well known scenes from the film which is where um, you know she's they're trying to pick a name for her um, and as they're they're walking down Madison Avenue, he says, you know, he says, "Oh, we're on Madison," and she goes, "Oh, Madison," and that, and you know, she picks that name, um, and you know, from that point on uh, in history, um, all of a sudden, Madison became a popular name for girls, and it's just insane that this is kind of the moment where that happened. And uh, you know, I do like the gag where he's like, "It's a good job we weren't on like you know fourth and one hundred sixteenth or yeah. something." <laughs> it's like, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was fun, but yeah, the Madison thing. Uh, if anyone wants to kind of expand, yeah, on it. I was. I had no idea until, I mean, it was because he said that's not a name, and I was like, it is a name. My cousin's name yeah, Madison, yes, so name, I said, yeah. surely Splash did not invent the name Madison, but I was wrong. It Splash invented the name Madison as a as a first name. And yeah, I actually read that uh, it went in 18 years. It went from not existing as a first name to being the number two name for girls, which is crazy. Um, and it's funny because you think, what if they'd made a different, like, what if they'd made a different choice in that moment and picked a different name for her? Would that have been uh, popularized? Or I don't know. It's just, it, but it is. Yeah, it's one of those funny things. Uh, and you know, it's something I think as well that you know, like Daryl Hannah has kind of spoken about like years later, where she's like, "Yeah, it's, it just mystified her that out of nowhere, all of a sudden, all these girls were named Madison, and it was just because of Splash." Um, you know, which kind of shows the the amazing reach of this film. Um, but uh, a, bit, a little bit like uh, over here, um, the name Kylie. Up until Kylie Minogue became famous, nobody in this country was called Kylie. And now, if you meet someone called Kylie, you know they were definitely born like after nineteen eighty eight. 
um, because that's when the name just for like from like eighty eight through to like eighty nine ninety the name just became insanely popular just because of Kylie Minogue. Um, so and I'm sure most Americans are like, who is Kylie Minogue? Um, she's she's an Australian singer who's extremely popular in this country. So popular, she made a name kind of just suddenly exist um, in this country. But yeah, the Madison thing's fun, um, you know, and. Then I think we kind of get a kind of accelerated like romantic comedy thing where, you know, we've already kind of had the meet cute and then we start to get the kind of elements of most romantic comedies, which is um, kind of somebody is hiding a secret, which in this case is that someone is a mermaid. Um, and there's a kind of tense scene where she's having a bath and she's like, you know, put some salt in the water. Um, and then, uh, you know, Alan is kind of concerned, you know, cause she won't let him in the bathroom. Uh, which I think he needs to get some boundaries, quite frankly, um, Alan. You know, if oh my god, what an awful scene! I mean, really, like <laughs> yeah. you would not freak out if someone doesn't let you in a bathroom. Like it's fine. Like, duh, she's naked in there. Why? That, yeah. No, that was too contrived and ridiculous. I feel like every comment I'm mean... making is about that, but honestly, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I I think it's because they need to put some kind of tension in the fact that he might find out, and this it seems like the easiest way to do that. So of course. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, by the time he breaks into the bathroom, uh, she's her legs have already kind of returned and she's no longer has a tail. Uh, but I thought this was a nice kind of sequence where they kind of show her her legs kind of becoming a tail. There's like a nice little effect where, um, you know, her legs are together and then they kind of like you know, the scales kind of appear. And, um, you know, it's a neat it's a neat little kind of effect that they, they did um, with like a vacuum cleaner, like literally sucking, <laughs> sucking this kind of like plastic onto her legs that kind of formed these scales mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of interesting oh. um, but yeah and and you know I mean in all fairness he does hear like what sounds like her falling um, before he breaks down the door so I don't know that's maybe a little bit of an excuse but yeah it's it's kind of just to accelerate this um, you know and he gets her a present and of course it leads to again one kind of probably one of my favorite things where she she loves the box Mm -hmm. And then he's like, oh, no, you need to kind of like, that's not the present. The present isn't the box. It's just the, um, you know, there's a thing inside, which is the present. Um, and then, of course, she returns the uh, she returns the favor by putting a gigantic fountain in his bedroom. And and I, and I saw uh, that, the, I that actually those two scenes were out of order. The the fountain and the bath scene apparently happened. We're supposed to be oh, in yeah, the other order. Yeah. And that's why there was the uh, salt in the in the room. So you know, in a non-kitcheny <laughs> place. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. But but then additionally, um, to, to 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 go on back to what you were saying, Alice. I mean, I totally get what you're saying. Um, but in a, in the same in a similar sense, though, it's 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 a matter of I think, uh, you know, you yeah. He he could say okay as long as you're okay in there. But then when the when the when the when the uh, she falls out in that bump noise happens he's more worried but then there's also the part where she's saying she's shy yeah <laughs> and he's saying now you're shy <laughs> you know so so there is that weird uh, dichotomy kind of juxtaposition what have you that it doesn't yeah. things don't quite make sense as far as in universe but to us of course they should make sense but unfortunately for some people <laughs> it could be a little more confusing as to why why is he so <laughs> 
I, when I was a child as well, the have the idea of that fountain being in his bedroom, I was like, that's what happens if like first of all, how is it hooked up to the water? I don't understand that. Second of all, it's consuming a lot of water. Third of all, what happens if it starts to leak? And like, is the floor going to be able to hold that fountain? Isn't it like solid stone? Wouldn't that like just break through to the floor below? There's a whole lot of concerns that they never addressed for me uh, that really worried me as a child just about that whole kind of fountain thing. So, um, also, how did she get the fountain in there? It's like, it's just kind of in, it's insane. Like the dormant, like I mean, they wouldn't fit in the lift. The, like you'd have to take a wall out. Like I. Anyway, yeah. So, any, I mean, I guess she's a mermaid, so I guess we could excuse uh, a fountain suddenly appearing in the bedroom. Uh, but, yeah, so, and, of course, at the same time, we have Cornbluth, who uh, is now convinced, obviously, that mermaids exist, and he tries to prove this in front of, I don't know, his colleagues, and they all just laugh at him <laughs> and say, this is ridiculous. Uh, you know, the, this naked woman is not a mermaid. You know, she had legs. And, of course, this is where he kind of explains the law of, like, yes, because she was on land and... Um, the professor, the, you know, his like mentor is like, well, you know, you told me this, and and he's like, yeah, I told you that as like, you know, a joke, like as a, you know, like a, a kind of story to kind of like have a bit of a laugh, like you're taking it too seriously. That's a great professor. Uh, yeah, just yeah. all the facts <laughs> I lectured you about. No, no, just just to make you happy, just a little bedtime story. Yeah, it's like kind of you're meant to be like a scientist you know mm -hmm. learn the difference <laughs> like you know i'm just saying that this is this is the myth these are the myths of like mermaids uh, just kind of like enjoy that as a story um so yeah um kind of that that i mean there's a there's a whole thing where cornbluth figure because the professor that of course says part of the law is that you know what are you going to do like um, cover her legs in salt water and then they'll turn back into a tail which I don't know how his kind of mentor professor really knows that that's a thing uh, but of course that sets off a light bulb in Cornbluth's head and that's what he's going to spend like the next 15 minutes trying to do is throw water onto various women's legs um, because he keeps not finding Madison so he you know and, he, and for his troubles he keeps getting beaten up by <laughs> the husbands or boyfriends of these women um, which I thought was a kind of funny little running gag that they did. Was it the same woman? I thought it was the same woman each same couple each time. Like, yeah, I think yeah, yeah. I think he like accidentally catches the same like couple twice, mm -hmm. um, and he just kind of throws water on. Them. And the, the weird thing is, they do this thing where he like we see his point of view through a camera as like the boyfriend puts his hand over the camera before mm -hmm. like beating him up, and he ends up with like his arm in a cast, you know, stuck to like a, a rod. Um, you know, Eugene Levy does some wonderful kind of like physical comedy stuff, falling downstairs, you know, just kind of um, getting mm -hmm. hit uh, in general. Um, and kind of also, you know, plays with the idea of like having this this kind of arm in a cast, you know, for most of the rest of the film as well. So, um, you know, that's quite fun. Um, and then uh, there's a there's a brief interlude where Alan um, goes to the Twin Towers, and this is the second film in a row for Tom Hanks where he's ended up at the Twin Towers. Um, but I guess they were, you know, they were a big thing in New York, and obviously uh, when they were around, they were very happy to have films shoot inside them and you know kind of uh, you know publicize them basically so uh, and this is of course where Madison uh, we well we think that she's embarrassing herself by eating a lobster in a unique manner um, but obviously Tom Hanks has got other things on his mind because you know she said she's gonna leave and he thinks it's an issue with like a green card and so he kind of proposes marriage but she doesn't really address it um, and I do kind of like that she basically like eats through a, the lobster through the shell, <laughs> um, and the kind of guests around are like aghast. And Tom Hanks is just like, oh, she was you know really hungry, 
and then you know afterwards you know when when she's like oh that's where that's the way we eat lobsters he's like okay like it's 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 a thing that in another kind of like romantic comedy setting would kind of trip the couple up but he's just kind of playing it off as like yeah it's funny like you know you're eating a lobster by literally just biting straight through the shell so you know he's not really concerned about that he's more concerned about um you know the fact that she didn't address the kind of marriage proposal um and I think it's this the point where he says that he loves her um, when they're kind of they're about to go ice skating. Um, I think it's around there, um, and then they go ice skating, and because she kind of turns him down, she uh, you know he kind of gets a bit petulant, and they kind of get into an argument. Madison has a lot of pretty privilege. I mean, she can embarrass herself pretty badly in in public with the lobster or in front of the TVs, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, I don't care, we can close in six days, she can just be standing there doing her exercises, so, I mean, it was just, it was just really interesting to watch that. Uh, so this is the point where Tom Hanks's charm began to not be enough for me to like this character, uh, because from his point of view, this is a woman that, uh, yeah. has known him for three days, and I understand, like, that they're in love, but still, it's not unreasonable for him, her to turn down his marriage proposal, and yet he is horrible about it. I mean, really becomes a ter- like a, a jerk. So, yeah, that that was the first that was the first moment where I was like, nothing is yeah, nothing is going to make me like like this character in the end. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well because obviously, like she, she takes off the ice skates and like runs away, and he, for some reason, he just yeah. keeps his ice skates on. Yeah. And so he gets ta- tackled by like the the guy, and I'm like, yeah, oh, that's a weird kind of choice, but I guess it's just mm-hmm. a bit more kind of like physical comedy and stuff. Um, you know, although obviously, you know, the next kind of scene, I think they've kind of made up a little bit, and they'll, you know, they go into the, you know, she kind of accepts the proposal and says, yes, let's get married. And this is where they go to the dinner with the president. And, you know, this is one part of the film that I kind of forgotten a little bit because I was like, oh, I know that, um, you know, uh, eventually Cornbluth will succeed. Um, but I was just like, how does he succeed again? And of course, he's at this dinner, which has got the president of the United States there, um, played, I don't know, like played by some guy who kind of does a couple of kind of like, he has like a couple of kind of like, lines that are kind of like presidenty mm-hmm. where he's like oh I'm just a you know cornbread guy and all this and it's like I don't know like I guess I guess kind of at the time you know Reagan and you know he's kind of all shucks type thing so I I, I guess they're kind of going for that um, but I want yeah, a whole but that, movie that... about this about this movie president I like this he was he was witty <laughs> that's it yeah he was kind of like making it yeah as stuff happened he was kind of just like making gags and I'm like oh okay I, I mean I guess the last four years have kind of soured us on exactly what a president is. Um, so it was nice to see this kind of this kind of uh, you know this kind of charming guy kind of being president mm-hmm. uh, and kind of making quips. Um, and of course, this is where uh, Cornbluth is pretending to work as a waiter, I think. Like, but he's got his arm up in a cast, and now he's got a, a neck brace on as well. And there's like a, there's a whole kind of bit of business where he's got these kind of like buckets or whatever that have got like salt water in, and he's got like a little spray gun, uh, like a seltzer gun. And so he's kind of got that on his back. So he looks like he's like a hunchback. It's it's a weird kind of setup. Uh, but of course, because the president is there, the Secret Service are there. So that gives that kind of leads the motivation of when 
you know, when Madison accepts the proposal and they decide that they're just going to, you know, go and get married straight away, uh, you know, because apparently uh, they have to get like a blood test or something. Is this a thing? I didn't realize this was a thing. You have to get a blood test before you get well, married in America. What's going I, on? I've in never, some states. Yeah. yeah, I've never been married myself, but uh, yeah, I've, I've seen that in other shows. That's for sure. In movies, shows. Yeah, which is, that's why they were going to Maryland, because it just depends on the state. But yeah, it's to verify that you're not related. What? Yeah. Such a, yeah. <laughs> Alice is embodying no, my reaction that's there real? in the film. blood test. Is this an 80s thing? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's still in the books in some places. Yeah, so they decide to go somewhere else where they won't get tested for their blood, uh, which I think is a good thing, because of course... If that happened, Madison would would be found out to be not fully human. So, oh. I think that's kind of one of the reasons why she goes along with that. Um, and then out as as Cornbluth looks like he's going to like shoot the president or something, um, so he goes to you know attack um, Madison. But then Secret Service intervene and nicely escort him out the building. They don't <laughs> they don't like tackle him or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know they just kind of politely push him in a different direction. Um, and then, of course, he gets outside just as Alan and Madison are outside and are getting their, you know, the uh, the valet. And this is this is where he then kind of takes out the, the the seltzer gun and he starts spraying Madison with a lot more water than I think would come out of a seltzer gun. Mm-hmm. Um, the the way he's spraying it, but you know, um, and he basically kind of drenches her <laughs> in salt water, um, and she kind of falls to the ground, and then you know. Uh, there's kind of a dramatic reveal as she's on the ground with her tail and then of course everyone is in shock and uh, and Cornbluth just kind of is let go by the Secret Service and he gets up and he, he starts shouting it that he was right um, and then the film, I guess this is the, the third act but it takes a kind of a little bit of a left turn but I guess it makes sense in that uh, Madison is then kind of picked up by the Secret Service and escorted to uh, a nearby military facility um, and for uh, for some reason, Cornbluth is allowed access, mm-hmm. even, like even though I don't I don't know what his discipline is, and he seems to have just been like a mermaid hunter for like the last couple of years, and everybody who's kind of um, in his cohort just laughed at him like twenty minutes ago. So I don't know that he's taken particularly seriously, um, but it does lead to a wonderful cut where we get. Tom Hanks' face in above above some water because he's in a gigantic tank naked, uh, with his hands covering his genitals, being monitored by a bunch of scientists because they think he might be a merman as well, and so they're waiting for him to kind of turn into a merman. Um, and what's funny is, of course, for Madison, it like happens almost instantly. Uh, like her tail just kind of emerges as soon as she's been touched with salt water. But they reveal that he's been <laughs> Tom Hanks has been standing in this tank for twelve hours, and he's and, and it's just like uh, I don't know. I kind of found that really absurd. I also like the kind of the trope of a bunch of computers with the uh, beeps and boops going on, and lights flashing and tape spinning. And I'm like, what are those computers? Like, when did you ever have the time to invent a mermaid detecting computer? Like, it's it just seems it's I don't know. It's a nice kind of like eighties edition. Um, that they have this super complicated like computer that already set up to test if he's a a merman, uh, and I do kind of like Tom Hanks's kind of yelling of like you know I'm 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 not a mermaid <laughs> just like mm-hmm. at the top of his lungs, like saying let me out of here I'm not a mermaid. Um, so yeah, um, 
but yeah, I, I mean, how does everybody feel about the kind of you know the big reveal uh, that mermaids are real in this universe? Uh, well, I mean, the reveal to all the, the not not to say everyone in the world, but at least you know scientists that are important and so forth, and and yeah, I mean they're they're kind of taking it seriously, but also stupidly, <laughs> also with with like you said, having having uh, Alan be in this tank for so many hours. It's pretty ridiculous, you know. Hey. He's not going to turn. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then of course, they, I mean, this is, I feel, where things kind of start to accelerate because, you know, we know that mermaids exist. We know that Alan isn't a mermaid. Um, so they do, they kind of, um, you know, they let him go. And then, of course, his brother kind of, you know, takes him back to work and everybody kind of pauses kind of <laughs> kind of mid uh, mid job as was the as was the want in many 80s comedies when you when you saw someone and you knew that there was going to be a, a line delivered um and i like the kind of john candy kind of brushes off and he's like what you haven't seen a guy who's like made it with a fish and it's like <laughs> and he just i don't know uh, and this is when we get the payoff for the kind of the uh, the receptionist who never gives him his messages because she now says that lots of people have been phoning and she wrote down all the messages so he's got like this huge stack of messages um from various people because obviously someone wants to get in touch with him about what happened um, and when he returns home, of course, you know, like he's he's bombarded with uh, kind of reporters, and that's why they end up going to the warehouse to kind of hide out. Um, and you know, this is this is where kind of Cornblue sees what they're doing um, to Madison, um, and you know that she she you know she doesn't seem particularly happy, and she's you know also getting um, you know starting to kind of I don't know the, the kind of the days are counting down, so something's happening. She's getting sick. Um, and then and the, he's over his discussion of them kind of like you know once they've tested her fully uh, they're then going to like um, you know kill her and just start kind of you know uh, looking at her anatomy um, and obviously Cornbluth uh, I think Eugene Levy does a good job of kind of uh, being kind of uh, kind of maniac for most of the film who's kind of pursuing the idea that you know he knows Madison exists and he just wants to prove it to the rest of the world and then obviously he sees the consequences of these actions and then he kind of has a change of heart and you know he kind of comes over to the side of of uh, of Alan and uh, and Freddie so i kind of like the way that he does that of of kind of being being the antagonist for so long um and then he's interrupted while he's at the dentist and partially sedated <laughs> and and Tom Hanks kind of just drags him out and he's like let's go and rescue Madison so i kind of i kind of like how quickly um, you know they kind of they don't they don't kind of drag out the the kind of rescue. But but how did Tom Hanks find him? Like he just knew. I don't know how they found each other, right? How did <laughs> Corn Booth find her? How did Tom Hanks find him with the dentist? There's a lot of unexplained like how we've navigated things. Did he find Corn Booth's wallet? Like I don't know what's going on. I think Corn Booth knew that she was with Alan. I think that's how he, you know, like he saw them together, and and then obviously he sees them together at the dinner, um, <clears throat> and then he he goes and gets his like saltwater gun. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it, it's kind of a little bit coincidence, but you know things have got to things have got to move forward because we've got to get to the rescue, um, and you know they this is where we get some of the more kind of overt comedy, where um, Cornbluth takes Freddie and. Alan in, but he says that they are Swedish um, doctors who've like come to look at um, 
uh, you know, uh, look at Madison. I would have preferred actually, and this is just me, I would have preferred it if the joke was that they were Danish, because then that would be a more direct reference to Hans Christian Andersen, and it would have been... Oh, yeah. It would have had like an extra joke. Uh, but yeah, they're Swedish, and, well, well, um, and, and and they are, but they are impersonating, or, or not? They aren't really trying to impersonate specific Swedish people, but there are specific Swedish scientists that are supposed to be coming. So, yes. So so Kornbluth knows Kornbluth knows that, so he tells them to be Swedish. Yeah. And but I f- I feel like the joke could have been yeah. that those those scientists were Danish. That would have oh yeah oh yeah yeah especially the Danish. I'd yeah. be sure. Sure, that'd be great. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, they're Swedish, and the joke is that the the the, the guard who's outside yeah. where they got to go in, he also he also is part Swedish, and so he speaks Swedish, and he asks them, you know, how are you enjoying your time over here, and they both just go, oh yeah, 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 and they just do that over and over again, and then John Candy delivers probably I don't know probably one of the best gags in the whole film, which is where he he you know he kind of he says something in Swedish. Um, uh, about having a 12-inch penis, and the guard kind of like laughs and then just lets him go in uh, because of this. And we then find out that you know John Candy has been watching Swedish porn, and that's where he's picked up the Swedish from, um, which is kind of like the longest kind of setup in the entire film. The fact that he's like he reads you know Penthouse, and you know there's kind of a, a certain kind of sleazy element about him, and the fact that he would you know own what I'm guessing at the time probably would have been in America at least illegal pornography. Um, because I don't think you were allowed to import Swedish pornography mm. during the eighties. Um, so yeah, so it's it's I don't know. I, I kind of like that as a gag. Um, and then of course you know when the real doctors arrive afterwards, it's like a you know that's when they figure out what's going on. Uh, but I also kind of like that um, we then get. I, I mean, it feels like it's a bit unnecessary, but we get a second guard who's actually outside the thing, mm-hmm. and he says that these are the Swedish, you know, scientists. And then he does like a, you know, he they then kind of have to kind of play up to him, um, and this is this is where John Candy puts on like a bit of a Swedish accent as he's going into the through the door, and this is obviously where they point out that Tom Hanks doesn't look Scandinavian, mm-hmm. um, but you know it's 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 just a weird thing that they 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 kind of hang a hat on it. Um, and then, of course, this is where, you know, they, they then... What's funny about this is they, they kind of play up the fact that the mermaid has, you know, has attacked uh, one of the scientists. But when they bring out... They, they then bring out the scientist who's been attacked. But the, the package is suspiciously mermaid-shaped. So it's mm-hmm. like, Yeah. It feels kind of obvious, but I, I don't know. I guess within this universe, it kind of works. Um, and then once the real scientists arrive, we see that John Candy is sitting above the tank, fishing with a cigar, and it's just a, I don't know, it's just a, it's a kind of weird little sight gag. I don't think we see him for the rest of the film after that, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. So that's just like, that's it. His brother goes to live with a mermaid, and he'll never see him again, and that's the last he ever saw of him, was mm. when he was sitting on top of that tank um, in the military facility. Um, and then obviously, you know, we they figure out that the, you know, the mermaid has been... Uh, taken, you know, there's a, a short kind of chase through the streets of New York. They end up on the dock, and this is where Madison kind of makes it clear that if she goes back to being a mermaid, um, you know, she can never return. I don't know why, but they they're just putting it here, and you know, he's like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll come with you then, and you know, and then I can come back and visit, you know, his brother on Christmas and Thanksgiving or whatever. And this is where she's like, no, if you come with me and you know, basically become a merman, you can never. You can never kind of come back, uh, and this is where they figure out that um, they met when they were kids, uh, and that's why when he was underwater, he, he was kind of safe, was because she was kind of like taking care of him, 
Um, so I don't know. I guess yeah. that's a nice kind of way to kind of tie things together at the very end. Um, but it feels obvious that you know when you were a kid you saw a mermaid and now you're going out with a mermaid. How many mermaids are there? I don't know. But <laughs> it feels like you should have made the connection a lot quicker yourself. Uh, but it basically re requires Madison to say that was me, like to his face, for him to kind of get it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know we kind of get the dramatic ending with like uh, helicopters and a bunch of frogmen jumping out and and you know she jumps into the water and then kind of Alan has to make the choice as to whether or not he's going to follow Madison and he does um, but you know they're a little too late because there's like I don't know six or seven frogmen in the water already um, but they just beat him up underwater <laughs> and um, you know she, she kind of kisses Tom Hanks underwater and now he can breathe underwater and she like yeah. smacks a couple of them with her tail he like kind of punches a few of them in the face underwater and that's it they kind of swim away um, into the credits and that's where the film finishes and then we get of course love came for me uh, over the end credits <laughs> uh, a tradition that in most 80s films as with Mazes and Monsters is to have like a theme tune um, and I, Tom Hanks gets quite a few of these uh, going forward. There are a lot of his films where, um, you know, there's a, there's a theme tune that kind of is sung over the credits. Um, in one, one in particular, one of his co-stars sings the, the theme uh, to the film uh, about a playground. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, it's kind of typical kind of 80s, like, ballad. Um, it's not particularly memorable. Uh, but... Yeah, so that's a weird way to end the film. So, uh, any final thoughts uh, on on Splash? Well, 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 piggybacking right onto that for the for the theme song there at the end. It's it's. Uh, it, I remember when I was just watching it this past, a month ago that in the opening credits, I'm pretty sure it said, you know, in theme song or whatever by Rita Coolidge. So it's like it's like oh okay wow that's something to look forward to and that takes all the way to the end credits to finally get that. <laughs> um, but because because I do know her from uh, Joe Cocker Mad. Uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen album, great album where she appears on it, singing Superstar. Uh, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, gosh, the, the whole movie in general. If I haven't really said it yet, I mean, it's it's just I think I was a little bit younger than you, Darren, when I saw it. When it pretty much when it first came out, I don't know if I saw it in the theater or just a, within it, probably a year later on HBO or something, probably. Um, but you know, just a little bit younger than you, about nine, ten maybe, and you know, I you know. I don't think I was a sexual being then, you know. I was I was too young. I didn't, I didn't hit puberty yet, that's for sure. And uh, so I was I was definitely not the, uh, you know. I, I didn't have any kind of skeezy things like Freddie did, you know. I didn't do any kind of weird things like that. I don't think. Um, and uh, but you know, I was definitely more more the Allen type and and just more, uh, you know, uh, looking forward uh, to other things. Uh, but. You know, it's it, 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 it captured my heart and soul, and saw it several several times. That's for sure. Over the following five or so years, um, and then finally came back to it, like I said last month, and 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 still loved it. I mean, there's there's certainly parts where yeah, I, I had to scratch my head, and and you know, not quite as much as I did with the Cape Cod thing, but um, you know, yeah, there's 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 little things here and there, but still, I find the movie to be really endearing and and it's, and it's a part of my childhood and i love it for that but I, I i can see oh yeah it's taking a bit long you know there at the beginning to get going kind of but even that has it has it's populated with some 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 fun things with the eugene levy character and the uh oh the the, the boat sequence with the with the, the motorboat you know fun things throughout so really so so giving it a rating of course T. Hanks or no T. Oh yeah, so, so yeah, for me T. Hanks. 
Uh, for me, it would definitely be a T. Hanks. I, I had issues with the movie, which I think I was very vocal about, but uh, I love the 80s and maybe early 90s tradition of fantasy rom-coms uh, set like in modern day. I've always thought those movies were charming, and now they're nostalgic for me. So because of that, it was very pleasing to watch. Now, Alice, I believe that you are the newest viewer of the film. Um, oh, I also saw it for the first time last oh. night, just to be clear. I don't know how I missed it as a kid, but yeah. I didn't, um, I didn't realize that, Kelly. I thought, I thought you'd, when you talk about nostalgia, no. I thought you were, you know, you'd seen it young when you were younger. Oh, wow. And, wow. No, no, I'm nostalgic for this type of movie. Oh, okay. Like, you know, all, all of those, because this type of, this type of thing was very, not necessarily mermaids, but like, uh, but like a fantasy romantic comedy set like it like kind of a magical realism thing i think was super common in the 80s and 90s that they don't do it so much anymore or am i crazy that's yeah. how it feels to me yeah it doesn't feel like it's a common trope anymore in in most films for them to kind of set it in like a fa like you know you you'll have a rom-com and occasionally you'll have like a high concept I mean, rom-com I mean, um where yeah. you know uh, yeah. you have like a groundhog day or something like that um but it, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like they really do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a good example. Oh, definitely. That all of me comes to mind. You got Tom Hanks coming back to it for big. Like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so Alice, as we said, um, well, I mean, not the newest, but I would think the youngest. I mean, I'm assuming things about Kelly's age here. Um, <laughs> uh, so the youngest viewer, so probably not as familiar as everybody else in terms of like knowing about this film growing up, or you know, kind of the tropes of it. Um, so, you know, what are your thoughts generally on the film? Right, yeah, right. I mean, I have never seen the 80s. Sounds cool, though. Um, I know everyone's kind of cringing right now. But no, I haven't seen them. I have heard, I've heard of the title before. It's not like I've never, you know, sort of heard of this movie. But I really didn't know... I mean, maybe just kind of the man falls in love with the mermaid thing, possibly. But, yeah, I really did not know much about this film. Um, or Tom Hanks as a younger actor. I was, like, very astonished. Obviously, Daryl Hannah, someone who I think about as much older, <laughs> was very, very beautiful in this movie. Tom Hanks, okay-ish. John Candy, way too much. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I, you know, this is definitely a no T. Hanks for me. Uh, it, it, was, it was just way, it was way too contrived. It, you know, I'm fine with suspension of disbelief, but there was just a lot to suspend here. Um, you know, this is this is a suitcase that, uh, you know, we we need to, we need to unpack this, but you know what? No, let's just throw away the whole suitcase. It's it's just it really didn't work for me. There was just a lot that was not explained. Not a, you know, the the mermaid lore kind of came in at very strange, convenient times. It's just, it's not, it's it's just not great, and I'm sad because, like, this is my genre, like, this is, you know, this is, I was so excited to finally see it, and, like, I'm I'm sad that I'm disappointed. Uh, well, I tell you what, my, my, I mean, for me, obviously, it's a tea hangs, of course, should go with that saying, um, uh, but I would say a thing that might make you appreciate this film more is the sequel, Splash 2, uh, which is awful. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. is it awful? Oh my gosh! Also, how did this movie? Did it get nominated for an Oscar for screenplay? Because 
man, who were they up against? Like this, that. The writing is, ooh, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. About I mean, that. it's best original screenplay, which is a little bit of a a softer category, yeah. I'd say, because you don't have source material, do you? So you get a little bit more leeway, I feel. But I'll I'll tell you who the other the mm. other nominees were for this particular year. Uh, the winner was Places in the Heart, which oh I've goodness. never heard of. Literally never heard of that film. Right. Um, uh-huh. uh, Broadway Danny Rose, which uh, you know. Uh, Woody Allen pretty much got nominated every single year in the 80s for whatever he put out so uh, El Norte mm-hmm. El Norte I don't know again I don't know that film at all um, and then Beverly Hills Cop um, so I, out of those I'd say that probably Beverly Hills Cop should have won but I, I've never seen Places in the Heart so I've know. seen El Norte it's very good too okay well there we go kind of a bummer uh, yeah, and I would say that, you know, uh, Broadway Danny Rose is probably one of the better Woody Allen films of the 80s, if you can still watch Woody Allen films. Uh, and obviously that's a personal choice for people to make. But, you know, it was kind of, you know, uh, one of the bigger ones. I'd say actually, uh, yeah. Although saying that, the, pre- the, the, the previous year, War Games got nominated. I love War Games. Probably one of my favorite films in the entire world. Um, I used to have a copy of War Games that had the commentary that I had on my phone because... Uh, I had a thing with Sony Ericsson where you could download a film a month and I just downloaded War Games and I put it on my phone I turn on the commentary uh, which is the writers and the uh, director and I just fall asleep listening to that every single night because it was so great they're so great at how they yeah so War Games is great but the previous year Tender Mercies won and that was over the big chill Fanny and Alexander Silkwood of War Games I don't know what Tender Mercies is but that doesn't feel like it's uh, better than War Games or Silkwood uh, or even the big chill so yeah some weird choices uh, following year, Witness beat Back to the Future, Brazil, and Purple Rose of Cairo. I mean, <laughs> Witness is an okay film, I'd say, but better than Back to the Future as a screenplay? I'm sorry. No. Um, yeah, so get it together, 80s Oscars. I'm going to have to travel back in time and sort some of those out. Um, yeah, so if you, if, you, if you do get the chance, and I don't know how you would, but... Uh, yeah, give the sequel a chance, Alice, and uh, you'll find out how terrible this concept can be executed. Uh, because it was oh like, first of all, at the end of this film, they say that they cannot if they go if they go under the water, that's it. That's where they're living for the rest of time. Yeah. And then the sequel is like, oh, guess who's back? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and he just back up, and like, does she get gills when she gets in the water? Like, because there were times where she was just kind of like up out of the water, but she was breathing, she was fine, but like, but like, she still had her tail. I mean, there's just a lot of things that were unexplained about, you know, how she's really great with her legs. Oh yeah. You know, she she seems to have had sex before and seems to have walked before and that's amazing because that's a mermaid like the, the it's, it's inconsistent like the things that she seems to know and the things that she's just like what this is a lobster you know just i don't know i'm a little <laughs> confused uh, can, can i ask is the shape of water a spiritual sequel or prequel <laughs> even maybe I I thought the shape of water was uh, the second half of the movie was basically yeah, yeah. shape yeah. of water entirely yeah, just call that Splash 2. Um, <laughs> yeah, and like I said, Splash 2, T-O-O. Which I've got to be honest with you, in the context of Splash 2, doesn't make any sense. No. I like that they use that, but doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, but yeah, that was a TV movie. It was broadcast on the 1st and the 8th of May, 1988. And it's I've seen it like maybe twice, and it's just garbage. 
Um, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of stuff in it where you like this. Does, it literally doesn't make any sense because they said once they go underwater, that's it. But you know, they come back um, and they, and they they kind of make contact with Freddy again. And I don't know. There's a whole bunch of stuff, and it's just like a. She could talk to dolphins. I don't know. There's, there's no same no, answers too. No, this, uh, no. The, the oh, only no. The only same actor is the yeah. receptionist. Yeah, Dodie what? Goodman returns as Mrs. Stimler, <laughs> and, oh but God. every other actor completely recast. This is a thing that happened quite a lot in the eighties, Alice. You must appreciate where they would just do sequels, and every single character would be the same name. But the actors will all be completely different, and they just did sequels like that because the producers, the the production companies, they did not think of going into movies with the idea of anything being a franchise. Yeah. Oh, know, true. It was not. It was not considered. It was only after it got huge. Oh, maybe we can make some more money, and they didn't have actors on yeah. contract. Which is why you end up with Short Circuit Two, not having Steve yeah. Gutenberg in it. Yeah. Um, although Steve, or Alex, yeah. Shane, although, right? St- although although Stephen Gutberg was obviously right. tied down to three more sequels to Police Academy and Police Academy. and a sequel to um, Three Men and a Baby. So you know he did a lot yeah. of sequels, but for some reason Short Circuit Two, he was just like no. Uh, I like because of course he leaves an answer answer machine message, doesn't he, in the film, and that's his the kind of cameo. Yeah, oh yeah, so that's true. he is, but his character's basically gone. Um, so yes, well, I feel like this is a good time to kind of uh, tie things up. So um, yeah, I, you know, I I enjoy I enjoy this film. Um, you know, next time, uh, you know, we're going to be uh, getting super drunk and uh, going to a bachelor party. Um, so that should be interesting. Um, but before we go, uh, let's go to plugs, and I'm going to go reverse alphabetical. Uh, so um. let's start with Kelly. So I it can be so I, I normally host Rocky Horror Minute, which is a minute by minute podcast about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. We can be found at RockyHorrorMinute.com, wherever you get your podcasts, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter uh, and YouTube. We are kind of on an unplanned hiatus at the moment, but that should be ending maybe even by the time this episode comes out. I'm hoping it's kind of unforeseen circumstances, but. Check us out if you would. I got my three. I'll, I'll try to get them all in here. Uh, Almost Famous Minute, another movie by minute uh, show. It's currently ongoing. Uh, it's it's on all the socials, all the all the places, you, all the podcatchers, uh, what have you. Can, you can get it at. Um, uh, prior to that, I did Watchmen Minute with uh, good old Travis Bow, um, and uh, you know that was that was the director's cut for that 186 minutes. So that's our <laughs> our opening uh, salvo, so to speak. Um, but then um, more recently, most recently in the sense, uh, as a, kind of a cousin to the Movie by Minute project, it, it's uh, Song by Song for Feels Like Weezer. So, uh, or, or for the band Weezer, you know. Uh, the show called Feels Like Weezer. Um, so check that out. And and, and both uh, Almost Famous Minute and Feels Like Weezer are at pantheonpodcast.com. Yeah, so I've been on the Feels Like Weezer uh, and Almost Famous Minute, which is amazing. I do a lot of those minute podcast things i'm a panelist on the now on we'll see hiatus now you've seen it podcast you can find that anywhere and my twitter is at pod and my tiktok i bet no one over the age of 15 has has plugged that my tiktok is at podcast socialite yeah find me there we'll chat 
And for this, you can find us at the extremely awkward Twitter handle, which is T underscore FT memory. Because, you know, too many letters in, in the proper title. Uh, so find us there and of course uh, all of the places where you get podcasts uh, thanks to everyone for being my guest today thank you and otherwise goodbye